0: Welcome to the Inclusive Mental Health Podcast, Crossroads in Therapy by Belong. In this podcast, we will put therapy under a magnifying glass and enkindle the spirit of intersectional mental health. In each episode, we talk to experts with adequate professional and personal experiences in tackling mental challenges faced by marginalized communities. The title for today's episode is Discerning the Role of Religion in Mental Health. It is widely acknowledged that religion and spirituality has the ability to impact a person's mental health positively. Psychotherapeutic interventions that go along with the religious beliefs of the client in the therapy room can boost the process of healing in a significant way. However, various persons with lived experiences of religion-based discrimination have pointed out lack of affirmation of the religious beliefs in the therapeutic settings In this episode. We talked to Shafila Ladhani, a therapist who has been working rigorously with persons who face discrimination on the basis of their religion. Her counselling work is informed by person-centered, trauma-informed and feminist theories. Stay tuned as we discuss the possible pathways available for clients in a therapy room situated in a secular but exclusive environment. Hi Shafila. welcome to our episode for today.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So, Sheffila, your psychotherapy work has been informed by queer feminist and trauma theory. Can you share a little bit about how these theories play out in your practice?
1: I feel like, you know, when we are talking about terms and terminologies in a theoretical setting, these words hold a lot of weight. But in practice, when we are sitting with a client face to face, these words sometimes lose their meaning in a way. However, of course, you know, it's important to read theory, and that's how I have also developed my practice by taking supervision from people who specialize in this kind of therapy and just understanding my own biases and going through the process of it all. But in a larger sense, queer, feminist, trauma informed work is mostly about work that is more conscious and more focused on building a relationship which is healing for the client and not on the idea of a cure. And often mental health is associated with, you know, oh, there is depression and depression ho jaega, that depression will be cured and that I'm going to be fine soon. But it is about looking above the biomedical model and incorporating all kinds of socioeconomic, cultural practices to it which is why sometimes theory lacks a little bit because there's not a lot of Indian or South Asian narratives to it. But it is a learned sort of a practice. So it mostly means to be able to empathize without putting yourself in the position of a healer and creating a mutuality in terms of, I'm not an expert, but I'm just here to listen to you.
0: Right. Thank you for sharing that with us it's quite essential for us to recognize these theories before we put them in practice. Yeah. Uh, it's important for the clients as well. Mm-hmm. So you have also volunteered to provide pro bono counseling services to those in need during the pre-pandemic turbulent times. How has that experience shaped your practice?
1: It was uh, an eye-opener, to be honest. So when I started working in the field of mental health, Somehow this time around CA protests and the pre-pandemic chaos of, okay, there's coronavirus coming, like a lot of things were happening in a global historical sort of a sense. And that's when I started my official work as I'm a therapist and somebody as a client is sitting in front of me. And it was definitely a confusing period because I had just stepped out of a purely theoretical setting where I was just learning about things and I was reading and I was sort of fantasizing about being a therapist, but I never kind of had a lot of space to explore the reality of things. And I was suddenly thrown into this setting of talking to people who not only come from a mindset of seeking support, the client is also making a conscious choice of uh, saying certain things to you and letting you in on their world. And it's a very step-by-step process. Unlike the setting I was in where things were just happening and there were people who needed help and support and nobody knew how to go about it. Of course, I had wonderful people who guided me through it, seniors who helped me out. But it was just still very chaotic for everyone because this is not a precedented event that we were a part of. In terms of how it shaped my work is definitely it gave me a privilege check. And made me realize that therapy has to go beyond the books. And before this, I'd just been saying how theory and practical work need to go hand in hand. And theory is not clearly applicable in the field work. But now I was in the midst of it and I was experiencing it for the first time ever. And now when I'm like a full-time therapist and I'm working with clients on a regular basis, these incidents or these interactions kind of ground me a little bit and remind me the issues with accessibility, issues with language barriers, issues with privilege and underprivileged backgrounds. So it just kind of, you know, gets you back and forth from reality to fantasy. Hmm. Mm.
0: Shafila, now we traverse into the questions of mental health needs. Questions about mental health needs of religious minorities. Mm -hmm. Various legislations have impacted the safety and well-being of various religious minorities, especially the Muslim community in India. How does the state-supported invalidation club with incidents of violence affect the mental health needs of persons from minority religious communities?
1: For me to kind of answer this question, it's also important to kind of position ourselves in the country that we live in and to understand how religion plays a very central role in a lot of people's lives. Unlike the West, where, you know, most of the time state and religion are combined and you're socialized in that kind of a setting. In India, a lot of people are socialized with this idea of choice when it comes to religion, that it may or may not be a choice, but this is something that we kind of learn from our childhoods. I've seen a lot of people who have grown up to believe in religion, but to also still use these terms of, oh God, or, you know, calling out to God when you're in trouble. So it's a very ingrained part of our psyche when we are looking at religion. Religion and spirituality have also been known to give us a sense of security, a community, a sense of belonging. Structures of our society sometimes play a very significant role in how our individual mental health is in the first place. Add to that being a minority and add to that the pressure of state-supported or state-abetted violence, it becomes difficult to find that safety in its own way. Imagine if you're like living in a house and the state announces that being a part of that household is a bad thing. It makes you question a lot of things. It destabilizes your entire understanding of being. And when our safety is questioned, a lot of times, like especially if I'm talking about Muslims, a lot of people who are religious, they look Muslim. So, like, you know, you have these outward appearance based motifs of religion also. So, to question whether or not I'm safe enough to wear an abaya or to have a longer beard or to wear a skull cap, it questions perception of identity. So definitely it becomes a confusing and uncomfortable space to be in. That whether I am right or wrong, or what should I be doing in this situation? So it's not just about physical violence, but I feel like in a lot of ways, it's about the emotional torture and abuse that state sometimes puts its minorities into.
0: And in the recent times, we have seen that how not just the state-sponsored violence, but certain acts which are perpetrated by one's own neighbor of a different Mm -hmm. majoritarian religious group actually impacts a person's well-being, not just physical well-being, but psychological well-being as well. So in your Mm -hmm. experience, have those incidences also made a huge impact in a person's mental health well-being
1: I mean I've seen it in my own family also sometimes and I've seen it in terms of how you know when you're trying to rent houses and when you are trying to be a part of an educational institution sometimes social groups religion kind of becomes a central point there and even if you're not like a very religious person if you have a muslim sounding name it becomes difficult to kind of assimilate yourself in this group and of course when we are looking at the geography of let's say a state like delhi we see these concentrated areas where muslims are kind of quote-unquote allowed to reside in and this otherness that's created not just in an emotional sense but also in a physical sense if you go out looking for work it becomes difficult. Right after CANRC protests, one organization refused to hire Muslims. And it became an issue for like a month or two and then everybody forgot about it. But these kind of incidents keep happening in smaller and larger ways. So when we are thinking of mental health, it's important to kind of remember that we're not just talking about these hormonal or biochemical Things, but also the social structure of our societies and how this otherization affects us or how our minds perceive this identity crisis that we are put in consciously and unconsciously in our country.
0: Yeah, and you have put it very beautifully that how the two intermingles. Our social setting has a lot to do with our own personal well-being. When Mm. we talk about the therapeutic setting itself, which is supposed to be quote-unquote safe, various mm-hmm. symbols such as religious pictures or religious books can expose the victims of hate crimes to increase stress. According to you, what are the reasons for the desensitized approach prevalent in our country?
1: Like I mentioned, that religion is such a central part of our being sometimes that it becomes difficult to separate profession or therapeutic work and religion and spirituality. For example, when we are looking at the current therapeutic situations and therapeutic works, especially in India, but also in the West, the importance of exercises or importance of processes like meditation and yoga, it's become a very prevalent thing to kind of suggest your client to meditate and suggest somebody to take up yoga to help alleviate symptoms of depression especially depression. And it's not completely wrong. It's backed by research that sometimes meditation and yoga do help. But in an Indian context, sometimes this pushing of meditation and yoga is carrying that weight of religion also, especially when these activities in itself are not religious per se. They are cultural practices more than religious practices. I remember one of my clients, she had been referred to me by someone else and she was with a therapist before and she mentioned how she was asked to chant OM in her meditation because it's a good word. It's a small syllable and it's easy to chant during meditation and she did it for a while. But of course, you know, that dichotomy of does my meditation need to be religious Could my therapist not have told me that just use a monosyllabic word? Or could my therapist not have given me different ways to meditate instead of inserting religion into this practice? And of course, this is a seemingly small thing that, okay, you can chant Om if you're comfortable with it. And maybe it doesn't have to carry the religious weight. But we also have to take the political and social scenario into place. I have heard a lot of therapists quote Bhagavad Gita a lot. And if you look at Bhagavad Gita, it does have a lot of great incidents and stories and quotes and learnings. And there's nothing wrong with reading Bhagavad Gita, but like, you know, if a therapist knowing your religion and probably addressing this insecurity that you feel in your identity suggests that you read Bhagavad Gita, it kind of creates this conflicting space. And it is important to kind of realize the weight our words carry in a therapeutic setting, especially because we don't realize that, you know, sometimes clients are so, for the lack of a better word, dejected and feel rejected from the society that they come to you as this person is going to help me out. And in that setting, when again, your religion kind of becomes something you don't talk about, or an issue it becomes difficult to build that therapeutic relationship and that trust in that setting so when it comes to why there is a desensitized approach probably sometimes people from the majority don't even realize that it is a desensitized approach probably they come from this space of not hatred always but let's give them that benefit of doubt you know it's like a rich person telling somebody who's say not very rich that, oh, bath bombs are the ultimate form of self-care or taking hot baths, that is the ultimate form of self-care. We need to understand the weight these practices that we suggest our clients as soothing practices carry. So there needs to be a little bit of mindfulness when it comes to seeing these things in a therapeutic setting.
0: Mm. Well, historically, the perception of psychology as a science has conveniently concealed the multiple incidents where a therapist has been hostile towards a person having certain religious beliefs. How do you think unconscious biases can influence a therapist's conduct in a therapeutic setting?
1: I can speak about this for hours, but I'm going to keep it short and sweet. To call it an unconscious bias is unfair because most of the times we are conscious of our biases As therapists, especially, because this is something that has become a part of our training to create a space for our clients and not let our biases affect them. I feel like, you know, this barrier that sometimes therapists create that, you know, my client can know nothing about me and the traditional Freudian therapist who is kind of a wall for the client. I feel like that model needs to be reworked now, which means that if you feel like your biases are coming in between therapeutic work, maybe let the client know if you can be sensitive about it. Maybe refer your client to someone else. Maybe it's okay for us as therapists to admit to the fact that I cannot deal with this and apologize to the client instead of alienating them even more. And psychology as a science or a social science or just as theory has kind of forgotten the role of therapist in the therapeutic setting so it's analyzing the client and analyzing the client's behavior it's analyzing client's narrative it's summarizing the client's narrative but what about the therapist you still are a person in the therapeutic setting which is why studies of transference and countertransference too become extremely important and become central to the work of a therapist. Because you can't expect your own self to just be a statue in that setting or like a wall in that setting. You have to allow your biases also. You have to relearn some of the things. And it's okay for therapists to kind of move on from that setting of I'm the expert and I'm going to heal you and move to a more mutual expression of what therapy can be.
0: And Shafila, sometimes we as mental health professionals do come across various intersectional identities converging at one time. So a person can be a Jewish gay man or a Muslim bisexual woman, right? So how can those intersectional identities be given an inclusive space within therapy?
1: I feel like this shouldn't even be something that we question because it only when it comes to minorities do we kind of think of oh we can't work on this we can't work on this we can't work on this but if you look at personhood or individual identity as a whole there's a lot of things that people bring to the table and just because a particular person is uncomfortable with dealing with minorities it becomes more about the therapist and their learning And not about the client. I've heard a lot of therapists talk about how they can work with only a particular set of people. And maybe, okay, you do specialize in, say, young adult work or only geriatric work. And that's okay. But it's not like these people come with just, say, youth-related issues. And you're going to work on just depression and just anxiety. It's important to see a person as a whole. And important to see that what their identity signifies to them and what they want to bring to the table with regards to their identity. Maybe there is a Muslim client who does not want to talk about their religion. Maybe they are privileged enough to not worry about their religion so much. So these categories that we have created consciously and unconsciously need to be reworked. And probably the therapeutic education needs to be a little more intersectional in that sense, where we talk about theories and narratives and voices of people who have been unheard for so long.
0: Definitely. In your experience, Shafila, have you come across mental health professionals who have, on one hand, ignored the religious identity of their clients, as well as mental health professionals who wish to be more affirming to certain religious minorities? And how has that dynamic determined their own practices?
1: You know, this reminds me of an incident. A friend of mine went to a therapist and this therapist was hyper-focused on talking about her experiences during the CA protests. And while she did want to address traumatic part of her life, she did not want to go to it straight. She did not want to talk about just her religious identity. And this is where we need to understand that it has to be at client's pace. And a client decides the pace. They are the driver, mostly in a therapeutic setting. And you are just supposed to ride along. It is important To bring some issues to the surface, if you feel like your client is in denial or is ignoring a topic, but it has to be done with a certain kind of sensitivity. So like this friend of mine, her therapist kept bringing up how her religious identity affects her and how her religious identity otherizes her and alienates her, which are all completely valid points and they need to be addressed in the space of therapy. But at the same time, they have to be done at the level of client's comfort as well. Not everybody is going to come in and jump in on every traumatic incident of their life and start talking about it in a method that you are comfortable as a therapist in. So I think, again, it brings me to the first point that I had mentioned, that when we're thinking of trauma-informed and queer and feminist spaces, It becomes important to understand your role as a therapist as well. It has to be an empowering space for the client and not for your own biases and agendas and research questions and hypothesis.
0: Hmm. And Shafila, according to you, what are some of the essential pointers that a mental health professional should keep in mind while working with a person from a religious minority?
1: You know, I've been struggling with this question a lot, simply because sometimes to me, it feels like maybe lived experience is most important, even in a therapeutic setting. But of course, I'm very conflicted about that. So I don't have a very clear position on it. But I feel like a lot of therapists, including me, what we benefit from is just understanding, learning, and knowing empathy and just sometimes being vulnerable, even in a therapeutic setting. So if you don't know something, it's okay for you to tell your client that, okay, maybe I need to read up more on this. Oh, I didn't know about this. Oh, would you like to share more about this? It's important to create that space where you not only break that ideal image of a therapist in front of a client, but also that ideal image of therapist in your own mind. because We can't know everything. And of course, reading things is important and learning things is important, but it's not a generalized subject altogether. Often my clients have suggested books to me and movies to me and TV series to me to kind of understand their experience. And it becomes important to incorporate these little markers of how a person relates to things in their minds we can use media as a great communication platform in therapy. And there's nothing wrong with you being a little bit vulnerable in front of the client.
0: Yes, I do agree with that. Shefila, my last question to you would be, in a country where the state has failed to protect its social and religious minorities, how do you envision the future of mental health with regard to the question of accessibility?
1: When we think of accessibility, the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, the economic disparity. I was just reading an article about how collective mental health costs in our economy would be around $1.03 trillion or something. And this is a study done by WHO. And of course, it's important to look at the economic factors. But these studies mostly focus on, again, the economic working capabilities of an individual that we will lose this much time in productivity, that we will lose workers in this setting if their mental health is not good or not okay or not quote unquote normal. So we need to look beyond economics as well. So while state needs to create these funds where we not only provide therapy at an affordable cost, but also therapists who are more informed at- I don't think our current structures of uh, master's and MPhil and PhD programs allow us that space. Like, As somebody who's been working for two years, I can be extremely sure of how different my learning in my master's degree has been versus what I learn in supervision or what I learn in my own therapy. So we need to change the narrative of that if you study this much, you're going to be a good therapist and this is the degree that you hold and therefore you're a good therapist. A good therapist, along with the degree, has to have a lot of self-reflective work going on throughout their professional life. So when we think of the future of mental health, maybe creating structures to incorporate community support, not just for the clients, but for therapists as well, becomes an important aspect.
0: Hmm. So just a follow-up question, do you think that there is a dire need for support groups as well as mental health centers devoted to certain religious minorities in India, especially given the turbulent times that we constantly live
1: in? If we can create these structures without otherizing communities again, then we do need specific spaces for people with religious trauma or caste-based, because minorities in India are anyway not very well supported, are not allowed to have narratives of their own in the public eye. So these support structures need to be created and led by people from these minorities, and not by expert therapists. Because there is no such thing as an expert therapist. So, when we are thinking of community support, again, it becomes important to allow ourselves to imagine therapeutic spaces more than just therapist versus client spaces.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Shafila, for that. And I couldn't agree more about the need for such spaces and such therapists, actually, from marginalized mm-hmm. communities itself. I thank you again for taking time out and having this conversation with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me once again. Before we kind of end, I do want to add one more thing. Since I've talked so much about vulnerability and therapists being vulnerable in a client-based setting, I just kind of want to add a little bit to it that it's important to know that that space is still your client's space. I feel like if we are allowing therapists to be vulnerable and to kind of reveal a little bit about themselves it has to be with the mindfulness of this benefits my client and not me as an individual so of course all of this work has to be done with a lot of sensitivity and of course learning is a process so it's not just about you know okay okay, i'm going to be vulnerable in a therapeutic setting but it has to be done with keeping your client's best interests in mind yeah yeah
0: Great words to actually end this conversation. I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Shafala.
1: Thank you, Paranj.